The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. And we are closing in, in on our end of our series about heaven. It's been good for us to have these past few weeks to study a subject that I don't often preach. And I'm not alone in not preaching very much about heaven. As I told you at the beginning of the series, there nobody really preaches very much about heaven any longer. It's even hard to find information about it in the systematic theologies, and the absence of that material um, makes it one of those Bible topics that we tend to speculate about. And when we start to speculate about scriptures, we're getting into dangerous territory. We have to be very careful about the amount of speculation that we do because we can be led into some very serious erroneous doctrine. But the Bible does give us some information about heaven, and we've studied this for the past few weeks. And it shows us that heaven is the sure hope of God's people. And most importantly, it's the hope of the restoration of what God intended that life should be. And I don't mean to say by that that God's intentions changed when Adam fell in the garden, which would mean that our hope for restoration might be something that God had not intended. But God used the fall of Adam uh, an entrance of sin into the human race to bring him glory. And we might under, not understand all of God's ways and understand why he does things the way that he does. But in the fall of Adam and the restoration of man, we, we see this great disparity between God and the creature. And God puts that disparity on display. And we learn that there is no hope for man except by the mercy and the grace of God. Now, essentially, when we get to heaven, we'll see what it would have been like if man had not disobeyed God. And we'll see God as Adam saw him, but I think that we'll have a greater appreciation for God than actually Adam had. Because you remember, Adam didn't know anything about sin. He didn't know the other side of this before he sinned against God. He didn't know exactly what he had in God. And yet, we've learned through this sinful nature that we have and needing to be rescued from sin, we actually see how great that God is and able to rescue us from the depravity of the human heart. So we have a way of turning God's providence around and blaming God for what Adam did. But what God did was to very carefully orchestrate all that happened so that he would not be the cause of sin, not the author of evil, and it's not God who causes any of the sin that we're in. It's God who actually rescues us from the cause that we have made ourselves, Or we're in the condition that we're in because of that's where we want to be. There's no one who doesn't want to sin. We all want to do that. And God doesn't cause our sin, but he rescues us from sin. So the fault lies in us, not in God. God is not guilty of creating problems. He solves problems. He rescues us from the depravity of our hearts, and then he answers all the complaints against him with his mercy, his love, his grace, his affection, and then he adds something to that. He adds so much more, he gives us a promise of heaven and life that could not be ours except for that mercy and grace. Now often we ask questions like, why does God allow this? Why does God allow a child to suffer and die? Or why... Why does, why does God allow starvation in the world? Why does God allow there to be homeless people? And we start to blame God for our problems, not realizing, as I said, that God solves problems. He doesn't cause them. Our faith in Christ never disappoints. Uh, when you put your faith in Christ, you may miss some of the things that this flesh wants, but those things are not going to help you. Those are tools of Satan to destroy you. And you may be perplexed at times when you become a Christian about why that evil people seem to do so well. Why is it the, the bad people, the evil people that always get the good jobs? 
Why is it the evil people, you know, Charlotte, we've been talking about looking for a place to live. Why is it it seems the world can find any place they want to live? They do well, and it seems like everything's going just fine for them. They have plenty of money, and why does it seem that Christians always are miserable? We should never feel that way, but we do. We feel miserable about things. And this is the very dilemma that was faced by Jeremiah. He said, Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal treacherously? Asaph also addressed the same problem in the 73rd Psalm. He said, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there is no bands in their death But their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. So Asaph was prone to look at the world and say, Why do they do so well and we do so poorly? But then he was brought back to the thought of the difference between the godly and the ungodly, that the ungodly have all of life's pleasing things, but the ungodly are headed for destruction. And the difference between them and us, that is, the believer in Christ, is what God promises those who have faith in Christ. The wicked have nothing at last, nothing at all that lasts, and yet we have no end of the riches of eternal life. And our text describes these blessings that God has waiting for us when we leave this life. Now, in the last of these messages about heaven, I want to discuss two topics The first is God in heaven. The second is the redeemed in heaven. The first is how that we will see God. And the second is what we will do when we see God. What is life like in heaven? And how does God sustain eternal life in heaven? And so these last four messages that I want to speak about heaven will deal mainly with those two topics. And there are two places of Scripture that I'd like to look at today. The first is Revelation 21 verses 21 to 23. The second will be Revelation chapter 4. Now, in the first scripture, Revelation 21 and verse 23, it says, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. In an earlier message about heaven, I spoke about the companionship that we have with God in heaven. And in verse number 3, it says, He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And I promised that I was going to come back to, to this, in this message or in these messages to expand on this thought and to put the focus back on God rather than the other unique features of heaven that we've talked about. The sixth point in our outline of the New Jerusalem is the Almighty of the city. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty... And the Lamb are the temple of it. There's a lack of preaching about heaven. But I suppose even more serious is a lack of preaching about God. Now it seems incredible that many people in churches do not really care to hear about God. Our activities that we have in church are because we believe there is a God. But people become more interested in the activities that go on in church much more than they are about God himself. And so our activities become an excuse for us to have kids' programs, an excuse for us to have arts and crafts, an excuse for adults to get together to have some fellowship. A few days ago, I received an advertisement for a postcard, uh, for postcards that the church could use to promote itself in the community, And on the sample card, you know, it it had some things on there that you might want to put on your card to advertise your church. And on this sample card, it had this comment. It said, the sermons are relevant. Let me tell you about the word relevant. Relevant is a code word for we're going to talk more about you than we are about God. And relevant is a code word. It says, 
you don't really need to bring your Bible to church because we're not going to use that. We're going to talk about you more than we are about God. But a preacher who preaches straight from the Bible never has to use the word relevant. The word relevant is, is redundant because everything that we speak from the Word of God is deeply relevant to everything that you are. You can't find anything that is more relevant than God's Word. I've heard many times people say that my preaching doesn't help people to feel better about themselves, that my preaching is not satisfying because there's too much information that is not relevant to my problem. Well, I think that you need to read a little bit more of Asaph. And you need to read a little bit more about who God is and who you are. I think that preaching needs to exalt God. And we need to find our satisfaction in Him because everything else is smoke and mirrors. And you you can use that reference any way that you like. We are made for the glory of God. And if you can't find peace and contentment in God, then the happiness that you do find is nothing but a mirage. And when John saw heaven, he saw features that turned all attention to the Almighty of God. And we might wonder about this. How is attention turned to God when the New Jerusalem has a glaring omission? And this is a point that struck John as he looked into, into heaven. The New Jerusalem he saw was a city without a temple. So how can you direct your attention towards God when there is not even a place there that's dedicated for Him as a temple? And isn't that the way that we show that we do think about God? I think about this every day as I drive through Roner Park and through Santa Rosa. This is, this is very obvious to me, that there aren't very many churches. I'm from the South, and uh, our neighborhoods in the South are dotted with churches. Everywhere you go, there are churches. But as I travel around our neighborhoods in this part of the country, I find there aren't very many churches. In our part of the country, there are many, many mega churches. Thousands of people attending these churches. And at least it makes us think that they're thinking about God, even if they aren't really aren't. But they have these churches that make us think that they think about God. So people in our area must not think very much about God because there's so few churches. Does anyone really notice how few that there are? There was an article in the paper on Easter that identified this area as one of the least in the country for people that have church affiliation. There was a fellow from a Baptist church in the Central Valley who called me and said, I'm thinking about starting a church in Santa Rosa. Do you need another Baptist church? And I I said to him, well, the population of Sonoma County is about a half a million, and there are less than 1,000 independent Baptist churches in the entire county. A few years ago, I was approached by a real estate agent who wanted to know if we would sell this property so they could develop a strip mall on this corner. Would anybody miss our church if it wasn't here? I think most people in the community probably wouldn't. And so we think, well, is a church building? Is, is this place uh, a place like any other piece of property that's to be bought and sold for a profit? Well, in John's day, a city without a temple would be exceptionally strange. Can you imagine that you would go into one of the largest cities of this country, something, someplace like L.A.? You know, we talked about the footprint of L.A., I think it was last week or the week before, a week before, I think it was, and we talked about how huge that that city is, that the environs of L.A. cover over 6,000 square miles. Can you imagine going into that city and not even seeing a church? Now, in Paul's day, all of the cities had temples. When In John's day, and when Paul went to Athens, there were all of those temples that were there, ornate temples like the Parthenon. And then in Ephesus, the, the, the temple of the goddess Diana, the Egyptians had their temples. And then I think about this story in the Judges about Samson. Uh, The Philistines had captured him, and they blinded him, and they ridiculed him, and they brought him into the temple of their god Dagon so thousands could come and taunt him. The temple was just packed with people. And Samson asked to be taken uh, to rest on the support pillars of that great temple. And there was a young boy who led him there, and then it's 
Samson leaned on those pillars. He pushed against them and he brought that huge temple crashing down. They were there to taunt Samson, but he fooled them all. The Bible says he killed more than his death than he did in his life. Temples were important to people, and all the ancient cities had these temples. John saw a very peculiar sight. He looked into heaven, and there the New Jerusalem did not have a temple. And that was a very unusual thing. So where is the temple? Well, it teaches us a truth about God. It's part of God's story of redemption of man. So let me show you this in two statements today. Uh, These have to do with need. The New Jerusalem does not have a need for these two items. The first is, the New Jerusalem does not have a need for a temple. The New Jerusalem doesn't have a temple because it doesn't need a temple. Now that seems simple enough. But the reasons for it are deeply rooted in God's plan of redemption. Now actually, verse number 22 in Revelation is is different from any other place in Scripture. There has always been a need for a temple. Now you might think uh, it's strange that I would say this because today there isn't a temple for God. There's no physical structure that is a temple. This church building is not a temple. Now hear me out on this and and you'll understand why I say that there is always a need for a temple even though there isn't a temple today. Now in the Old Testament when Israel became a nation there was a need for a temple. The first structure that was made was actually a portable temple. That was the tabernacle. Uh, Tabernacle, the word means dwelling, and to them, dwelling meant a tent because they lived in tents. And so the tabernacle was a portable temple, and it needed to be because this this tabernacle would be uh, picked up and moved many times. God gave instructions for Moses to build it on Mount Sinai, and at that time, Israel was in the midst of a 40-year journey to reach the Promised Land. Now, when Moses was given the instructions, they didn't know it was going to take that long. They had no idea that it would take that long, but Moses might have figured that something was up because it should have taken them only about two months to get from Egypt into the Promised Land at the very most. And yet, when God gave Moses the instructions for the tabernacle, they were already 45 days into the journey. And so, Moses might well have said, Why are you giving me instructions for this tabernacle, this place of worship, when we're going to be in the promised land in just a couple of weeks? Why why would you do that? Wouldn't it be easier for you just to give us the plans later, tell us to build it later in a permanent place when we get into Canaan? But God didn't do that. Moses should have known that something was up. Why would you do this? Well, it's because of their sin that God was going to keep them in the wilderness for this 40 years. Because of their unbelief, they were going to have to move this place of worship many times in that 40 years. And then when they reached Canaan and they'd conquered it, they continued to use the tabernacle for another 500 years. And then... When Jerusalem became the capital city, this was the place where God wanted his temple to be. It was 500 years until that was actually conquered, and David made uh, the city of Jerusalem the place where uh, would be the permanent place of the worship of God. And so he wanted to be a temple there. And so David gathered all the materials to build a temple that his son, uh, his son Solomon would build later. So he built that temple, and that was the place of worship to God. And then in the ensuing years, that temple was torn down and then replaced by another temple. And the reason it was replaced was because a temple was needed. Now, in the New Testament, the temple was still prominent during the ministry of Jesus. He respected the temple, and he respected what it meant to God's people. And that's why on two occasions that Jesus went into the temple and he swept it clean from those who had made it a place of corrupted commerce. Well, after the cross and the resurrection, the apostles went to the temple often to preach. And they preached in the temple courts. They didn't actually go into the temple, but they preached in the temple courts. And there were many people that were saved, even many among the priests became Christians. But the use of the temple was wearing down. In fact, God was already through with it. When Jesus died on the cross, there was the unseen hand of God that reached out and tore the temple veil from the top to the bottom, signifying 
that the time of temple worship was done with. And since that time, Christians have not been given any kind of a mandate to rebuild the temple. In AD 70, the Romans came and they, and they tore it down. There's no mandate in the Scriptures. The apostles didn't have one to rebuild that temple. No funds were raised to try to restore it. There are no plans in the next 2,000 years or today for Christians to rebuild the temple. Well, are we to say then that God has no need of a temple in the present time? Well, there isn't a need for a physical temple. There's no need for physical sacrifices to be made, but God still has a temple. In these days of the church, God has a temple. And that temple is not a building. This church is not a temple. There is no place in the world that is a physical temple for God. But God still does have a temple. And as strange as that might sound, the temple of God is the body of every individual Christian. We are God's temple. A temple is a place where God dwells with his people. And our bodies are the temple of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 14, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and listen, and shall be in you. So the presence of the Holy Spirit in a Christian, the Christian is the temple, and that prompted the Apostle Paul to write to the Corinthian church and to complain about their immorality. He said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, I want you to catch a very important point here. This is actually why we study the Word of God, why we look at these things very closely. And that is that the word for temple in 1 Corinthians is not the same word that's used for a physical temple. And in Revelation chapter 21, when John said that he saw no temple in heaven, the word that he used there is neither a word that's used for a physical temple. But instead, John used the very same word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 6. So what does that mean to us? Well, it means there's no need for a physical temple because the temple is actually the presence of God. Your body is a temple because of the presence of God. And there is no physical temple in heaven because the temple is the presence of God. Brick and mortar doesn't shield us from God and keep us away from his presence like it did in the temple and the tabernacle of the Old Testament. When they built those structures, when the tabernacle was built, they overlaid it with thick skins, several layers of that over boards that were overlaid with gold. And no one was allowed to go into the temple but the priest. People were kept out of God's presence. There is no holy of holies today that shuts a believer out like Israelites were strictly forbidden to enter that place in the tabernacle and temple. Your body is God's temple, which simply means that God is always, or you are always, in God's presence. And that's the sense that we have in Revelation 21. There is no physical building in heaven because the presence of God is there. Now I want you to stop and consider that very carefully, that your body is God's temple. What happens when you desecrate God's temple? Well, what would happen to an Israelite if he went in and he desecrated the worship of God? Well, let's take a look at that for a minute. What happened to them? Turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Second Chronicles in chapter 26. Here we see an instance of desecration of the temple. And this story is about King Uzziah, who ruled Judah during the time of Isaiah. And this, this chapter is actually an interesting one if you want to read the whole thing later. Uh, Uzziah was a very powerful king, one of the most powerful of Israel's history, and under him the kingdom enjoyed great success. And Uzziah was famous for his modern technologies in warfare. 
That is, he had these ingenious improvements over the weapons of war of his enemies. Now, he was lifted up in his pride because of how he was conquering everybody. Everybody was talking about how great Uzziah was. So this is what he did. And this is what happened to him. Second Chronicles 26, verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. And Azariah the priest went in after him and with him fourscore priests of the Lord that were valiant men. And they withstood Uzziah the king and said unto him, It appertaineth not unto thee, Uzziah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed. Neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was wroth and had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was wroth with the priest, the leprosy even rose up in his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord from beside the incense altar. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked upon him. And behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they thrust him out from thence. Yea, himself hasted also to go out, because the Lord had smitten him. And Uzziah the king was a leper unto the day of his death, and dwelt in a several house, being a leper. For he was cut off from the house of the Lord, and Jotham his son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now this is what would happen if you defiled temple worship. Now, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we see the application of this to the spiritual temple. The problems of the Corinthian church that Paul wrote to were many. One of their chief ones was the indulgence of the heathen culture in which they lived. Church members at Corinth had been saved out of horrible lifestyles. The city was known for its rampant immorality. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us what they were like before they were saved. It gives us a list of the types of sins that they were involved in. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, isn't that just a horrible list of sins? If you look in Revelation 21, verse number 8, you'll see the same types of sins as what Paul said in these verses. That people that live in these sins do not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, the Corinthians had been saved out of these sins... They were washed and they were justified in the blood of Christ and now their bodies had become the temple of God. But many of them had, had returned to their sinful lifestyles. Now they're back into adultery. They're back into homosexual acts. In verse number 15, Paul wrote, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make him the members of a harlot? God forbid. Now this is your practical lesson that we learn here is that churches today have stopped preaching against immorality. And these very same sins that Paul spoke about and said, you need to stop that, you need to come out from that, you need to separate yourself from that, these were the very things that are being embraced by churches today. These things are now welcomed into churches. Now people open their arms and they say, come in and worship with us the very same things that God calls an abomination. And so the current buzzword for everyone who preaches against sin and preaches against sins like homosexuality, that common buzzword for us is that we are homophobes. That if you preach against this sin, that you are homophobic. If the church is against it, you are homophobic. But homosexuality is a sin that must be preached against, as all sin needs to be preached against. The church is not to accept Couples that are living together in adultery. We're not to accept pornography. We don't accept bad language and drugs and malignant prejudice. We're not to make this church a place where we open up our arms to all these different kinds of sins. 
See, the problem here is that there's no sin that is acceptable to God because your body is God's temple. God cannot have sin in His temple. And so this is the same thing. He's not going to have sins in the temple of the human body who is a Christian any more than He wants sin in the temple of heaven where the presence of God is. And this is the comparison that we have in the Scriptures Sin cannot defile heaven because all sin is excluded. Revelation 21 verse 27 says, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so John's view of heaven is to see God in purity and in perfect righteousness. And God does not want your temple, the temple of your body, to be defiled any more than He wants heaven to be defiled. Both of these are His temple. There's no need of a physical temple because God is always present in heaven and He's always present in you. And so you must strive for the sanctity of God's temple. We're not doing anybody any favors by welcoming sin into our church. We need to preach against it. We need to exclude it. Because the people of God are the temple of God. His presence is in them. And God does not want His temple to be defiled. So there is no need of a temple building in the New Jerusalem. Because God Himself is that temple. He's ever-present. Now secondly, we see that there's no need of light. Now let me take you once again into the physical tabernacle and temple. Tabernacle was an interesting structure, relatively small, 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, which is about the same size as a one-bedroom apartment. There were no windows in it that allowed natural light. There was a heavy covering of multiple animal skins that I mentioned a moment ago put over the superstructure so that no light could get in. There's a heavy woven curtain that served as a door. No light can get in. Separating the two compartments is another curtain that hung there that separated the holy place from the holy of holies and no light could pass between those two particular compartments. The light in the larger compartment so that the priest could see what he was doing was supplied by a golden lampstand that's much like a menorah that you see today. And this menorah, or this lampstand, had seven little bowls of oil. They poured oil into them, they put a wick in the oil, and the priest would light that, and that's what gave light in the tabernacle. The oil represented the Holy Spirit. And the lampstand itself represented the picture that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. In the second compartment... There was another light, and this light, though, was the presence of God there in a shining, glowing light. That gave light for that place, and that particular light was to show that Jesus Christ himself is the light of the throne of God, the light of heaven itself, that there is no need of any other light but him. Verse 23 of our text says that the city had no need for the sun, the moon, and the stars. It doesn't say there wasn't a sun, moon, and stars. It says there's no need of them. The light of them is not needed. In Genesis chapter 1, God created the sun to rule the day and the moon to shine in the night. When our grandson, Aiden, was um, three years old, we were outside on a day. One of those days when the, when the moon can still be, is still visible in the daytime, you know what I'm talking about? And he looked at that and he said, God needs to fix that. Well, God is going to fix that. God's going to fix that because the sun and the moon give us time. The rotation of the earth gives us time. And in heaven, there's not going to be any time. There's not going to be any night. The Lamb is the light of the city. It makes a difference when you are in the presence of God. Do you understand? It makes a difference when you are in God's presence. The light is always shining there. And so when your temple, your body, which is the temple of the Lord, has Christ in it, it is going to shine. It'll shine and it'll be visible to other people who know that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And we can tell by what you do if the light of Christ is really in you. The light of God will shine out from you on others. In the song, Speak, O Lord, which is one of my favorites, it has this verse. It says, Take your truth 
plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ may be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all the purposes for your glory. I love that verse. And what a difference it would make if we were absolutely honest when we sang it. Take your truth and plant it deep in us. Allow that light of Christ to be seen today. Now, for the remainder of our time this morning, I need to hurry on. I need to go to the second scripture that I gave you. This is Revelation chapter 4, if you'll turn there. And I want to talk to you about our seventh point of the outline, and that is the authority of the city. Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. After receiving the information found in the first three chapters of Revelation, which is Christ's message to the seven churches of Asia, John was caught up into the throne room where he saw God who is the ruling authority. And we notice here that John's experience of heaven is remarkably different from the fantasies of those who, who say that they've seen heaven, the books that you, that you read. None of them start in the same way that John started. John's attention was not fixed on streets of gold. It wasn't on diamond walls. It wasn't on pearly gates. It wasn't on mama that he hoped to see. And it wasn't on Uncle Fred and Aunt Alice that he hoped to see. It would be 17 chapters before John ever said anything about those things. Our first glimpse of heaven must be the very same thing that John saw. And that is John saw the God that we worship. Heaven is not for narcissists who see themselves in heaven and not God. The fantasy books that are written about this concentrate on the author and not on the God of heaven. John said, behold, the throne of God was set in heaven. And behold, that's a great Bible word. That's a word that means a sense of urgency to sit up, listen very closely, pay attention to this. This is a word, this is a word that's an attention grabber, and this throne grabbed his attention. Some translations read, a throne was standing in heaven. Either one of those words is fine. Set, S-E-T, or standing. Now I want to pull out three very important word pictures that we find here in verses 2 and 3. First is this word stands or set. It stands, which means that God's reign is permanent. It stands, it remains, it is permanent. The throne is set. It stands in the midst of heaven. It's a focal point on which all eyes are fixed. And when a pagan temple, the focal point would be an image, an idol, a representation of the God that the people worshipped. In some temples, that might be a bird. It might be an animal. It could even be a half man and a half animal. Can you imagine how awful it was for God to hear what Aaron said at the foot of Mount Sinai when Moses was receiving the law? That he made that golden calf and then he said, Israel, here Israel, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. And that was the same as saying John was in heaven and he saw sitting on the throne a golden calf. Now idols of those sorts have been around since Nimrod built the city of Babylon. Paul said that people changed the glory of God into images of men and birds and beasts and creeping things. But Israel's temple was different. It was different from all the other temples of all the other religions because there wasn't an image in it. There was no idol there. There was no representation of God. Idols always bring God down to man's level and actually below man because a man has to make that idol. And if you have to make God, how did God make you? Now, in this church, you're never going to see any statues. There are no paintings of Jesus in our church. There is no man hanging on the cross over there for you to look at. 
Because that is against the Word of God. There are to be no idols, no images of God. God is on His throne in heaven. He is the real thing. And this is actually the first time that we see God in a temple setting. God is there, not idols. His throne is set, and all bow before that throne, which represents God's permanent reign. Heaven is eternal, and God's throne must be eternal. He is the only God who is there. Now, I keep reminding you of this, and I'll do it once again. How can anybody say that there are many paths to God, or many paths to heaven, you believe in any God that you want to believe, you're safe, you'll be able to go there if you're just sincere about it. You're not going to make it to heaven believing that nonsense. And if by some weird twist that you were able to enter into the throne room of God and you're standing before God and He said to you, how did you get here? Can you imagine that He would let you stay in heaven if you said, I believe in a different God, that's how I got here. I don't believe in you, I believe in a different God. And it doesn't matter which God I choose. I will reject your son, Jesus Christ, that you gave as a sacrifice for sin. I don't need to believe that. How long do you think God's going to leave you in heaven if you said that to him? No, God's throne stands. It's the permanent place of worship. He's the one true living God. And who else are those in hell but those who reject the one true living God? Then the next word that we see is the word sitting, or he saw God sitting on that throne. He sat on the throne, which shows us that God's reign is powerful. God sits on that throne, the place of his power. Revelation 4, verse 5 says, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Thunder and lightning came from the throne. Those are symbols of judgment. Jesus said in Matthew 24, For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. That verse is talking about the suddenness of His coming, but it's also telling us this. If you read the rest of the chapter, you'll find that Jesus comes to bring judgment upon the earth. The tribulation is coming. And in chapter 6 of the Revelation... John saw beyond the throne room to see the judgment of God fall upon the earth in seven years of terrible catastrophe. Now make no mistake, God is powerful. He controls all the elements of the universe. He brings supernatural judgments upon this planet. And in the throne room, John's eyes are fixed upon this supernatural world that's now been opened up to him. And what he sees there is not angels that are little baby cupids with arrows. No, these are mighty warrior angels that that fight spiritual battles with strength that is unheard of among the armies of men. God's throne is a war room. I want you to understand that. In the first of these three chapters, Christ called for repentance. He gave time to repent. But then there comes chapter 4, and now war plans are being drawn. In chapter 5, there's a a book where the battle plan is laid out. In chapter 6, begins the implementation of that plan. At this point, there is no repentance left. Patience has now run out. Now, thank God that He's patient with you now. He gives you time to repent now. But there is none in these scenes. God laughs at opposition He laughs at presidents and Congress and the Supreme Court who tells us what we will do and what we must do. God is on the throne. And when he says time for repentance is over, it is over. He brings judgment. John saw God's throne. Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah saw these visions of God on the throne and they were all overwhelmed with the display of his power. God's throne is a place of power. Now let me switch gears for just a moment to give you the last thought. And it's the word surround. The word surround. God reigns with promise. Let me explain that to you. And there was a rainbow round or surrounding the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Are you ready for some politically incorrect statements? God gave a rainbow as a sign of a covenant. I think you know the story of Noah. 
the promise that God gave him that he would never destroy the world again with a flood. God never said that he wasn't going to destroy the world again. He just said, I'm not going to do it with a flood. And so he gave a rainbow as a symbol of that promise. But the symbol of God's promise has been stolen. The rainbow has been stolen, and it's been turned into a symbol of debauchery. It represents evil. The sins of those who stole it is actually part of what's going to cause God to rain down fire and to destroy this planet. Peter said God is going to destroy the world with fervent heat. Seems I remember a story, don't you? A story in the Old Testament about God sending fire and brimstone to destroy two cities that became forever symbols of God's lasting judgment. And those two cities are Sodom and Gomorrah. The rainbow that God put into the sky has been stolen. The colors of the rainbow no longer stand for God's promise. Now they stand for diversity. Now here's an interesting thing for you. There is diversity in heaven. If you want to read chapter 5 and verse number 9, there's diversity. However, in that diverse population of heaven, they are all united in a doctrine that lacks diversity. There aren't any differences of opinion when you get to heaven. The doctrine there is the righteousness of Christ that removes all of those sins that we read about in 1 Corinthians 6 and in Revelation 21. Today, the rainbow represents the diversity of sin, that you can be what you want to be, take up any lifestyle that you want to live, put a bumper sticker on your car that says, Coexist. And the rainbow, it has all this diversity of color doesn't it? But let's look at the rainbow that surrounds God's throne. You see this? There's only one color. It's the color green. In sight likened to an emerald. Folks, that doesn't mean that God is eco-friendly. That's not what that's about. Well, the rainbow re-emphasizes that God is a covenant-keeping God, that He keeps His promise. And that green is symbolic of life. And there is no diversity in how this life is obtained. It can't be done by doing your own thing. It can't be done by living the way that you want to live. It can't be by being gender neutral or anything like that. It can't be marring the image of God in you in any perversion that you choose to live. In heaven, there is no diversity of righteousness. There is no unrighteousness. Nobody is a sinner in heaven. There is no tolerance of any lifestyle but the life of God in Christ. Everything in heaven is about God. And if you don't comply with God in the righteousness of Christ, then you won't be there. Well, let me recap for you. The Almighty is in the New Jerusalem and He rules with authority. He is the temple and He is the light. He is the temple in heaven and you are His temple in this world. And you are to be holy as God is holy, so that you don't defile His temple. His rule is permanent, it's powerful, it fulfills His promise of eternal life. Now this truth, we should all know, is that someday everybody is going to see God. Everybody is going to see Him. But we're going to see God in different ways. And you want to make sure that when you see God, you have not diverged from His plan, the only plan by which you will be able to see God and stay with Him and live forever in heaven. And so what the Bible commands for you to do now is to repent of your sins, to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, to put all of your hope and your dependence on God to save you out of your sins, to separate you from sin, so that you can be holy as God is holy. Holiness is the way that you will see God. So you better make sure that you understand what holiness is and who the holy God is and what He requires of you. It's not always what you think. It's not what the world thinks. The plan is outlined in the Word of God. We've just seen it today. This is how we see the Almighty, the one who is the authority in heaven. Repentance from sin, trust, in Jesus Christ and His righteousness alone. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, 
We come to you with our hearts broken over those who live in sin, those who have not seen the light of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that through your mercy and your grace, eyes of understanding would be opened to see who Jesus is and the only hope that we have of heaven. Lord, I pray that you would lay it upon someone's heart to stop thinking about what they think is right, what seems to be right, their preferred ways of doing things, but rather to look into the Holy Word of God and see the only way that is acceptable, and that is Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to understand this and to see it. Speak to someone's heart today. For those of us that are Christians, help us to remember that our bodies are the temple of the Holy God. We are not to defile this temple. We are to live in the light of Jesus Christ. We are to forsake the sins that we live in and then do our very best every day to let the light of Christ shine out to others. Help us, Lord, as Christians to confess the times, the sins that we haven't lived the way that we should live. Open up our hearts, Lord, again, to your mercy and your grace. And we thank you so much, Lord, that you save us from our sins and then you guarantee us this place that's in heaven. Speak to us today, Lord, as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the important things that I wanted to draw out of that is that we don't always understand the way that God works. So His works are a mystery to us. But we can't override what God says and say this isn't right, that isn't just. The Word of God says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but those ways are ways of destruction. And if you continue in those ways, then destruction will be your end. And so we look at passages like we've seen today, and we need to understand that we've got to give up things that we think are right. We've got to stop looking at the world through man's eyes and look at it through God's eyes because God is pure righteousness. And if you look at it through your eyes, you're always looking at it from sinful man, the way it's sinful man sees it. And so you have to turn the world's thinking upside down and see the world as God sees it. And that's why we want to exalt God, sing songs about Him, lift Him up, because His way is the right way. We want to make sure that we're going His way. I encourage you today, consider where do you stand? What do you do? What do you believe? And where's your hope? Where's your confidence? It must be in God Himself, because His way is always right. His ways are always just and perfect. And we accept whatever He says as absolute truth. And that is the way to heaven. We'll sing another verse of our song. If you have any questions that you need to ask, if God's spoken to your heart in any way, we have people in the back. Be happy to talk with you. Pauline's here at the front. She'd be happy to speak with you. I will after the service or any time. Think about where do you stand with God. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.